Romans chapter 3, I'll be starting in verse 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law it is, by the law is the knowledge of sin. I love to tell the story for those who know it best. That's us, who seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory we sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that we have loved so long. What God wants of us is to be in love with the story of Jesus and to love to tell the story not only amongst ourselves, but certainly among the lost who are hungering and thirsting for something that transcends this life. To that end, we have taken Rob at his challenge, or I have especially, uh, in taking us through the three books that comprise the study method of Back to the Bible. I chose to move this book to Sunday evenings for a number of reasons, not the least of which, in the content matter of the Red Book, it is quite a bit more in-depth and personal, if I can say it like that, than book one or book two. You remember in book one, the green book, it all had to do with authority and establishing God's authority over man and being able to tell us what God wants us to do, what he wants us to be, and then moving that authority down the chain, so to speak, from God the Father to God the Son to God the Spirit who inspired the apostles and the early Christian writers to write what we have comprising our New Testament, and then moving that down from that and delivering it to the saints in the first century and knowing with certainty that what you have in your hands hopefully this evening in your Bible is the completed, completed revealed will of God. That's the green book. The blue book is all about the church establishing that God, Jesus, when he was here on this earth, established only one church. Matthew chapter 16, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that that church came into existence on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the first people that were comprised the church were called the way and that they, uh, they began to work and follow the apostles' teaching and the apostles' doctrine to learn everything that they needed to know and follow everything, all of the things that Jesus had handed down to the apostles. And as much as they comprised and stayed in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and fellowship and in prayers, they were staying in the will of God as the church. 
And brothers and sisters, the plea of New Testament Christianity is leaving behind man's thoughts and preconceived notions about what the church ought to be and how it ought to function in the 21st century and going back to the Bible pattern, going back to the examples, going back to the doctrine that those apostles taught and saying as much as possible, we want to be first century Christians living in the 21st century world. That's the blue book. That's all about the church. When you get to the red book, as I mentioned, it is a whole lot more personal because what you're dealing with is a person, an individual, and talking to them about their eternal salvation and talking to them about their soul and whether or not their soul is prepared to meet a God who will hold them accountable for what they've done or what they haven't done in this life. And so moving our discussion to Sunday evening, what I intend to do is cover about the first four pages of this book this evening. And in talking about God's justice and talking about his wrath and talking about the punishment for sin, I want to take this as a launching point and then we're going to put the red book on hold. And for a period of time, what I want to do is just preach through the plan of salvation on Sunday evenings. So, Lord willing, if God grants us another week to live, next week we'll talk about the spiritual condition of hearing the gospel. The following week, uh, my brother, I believe, if I'm uh, adding this correctly, uh, my brother is going to be here preaching for you. You may say, well, it's a twin in the pulpit. I don't know. I've never seen that my brother looks like a twin, but um, we've arranged that I'm going to go up and I'm going to speak at Katie, and he's going to come down here and speak to y'all. I don't know if he's going to follow this, but um, I'll certainly advise him and say it's up to him if he'd like to. The following week, what we're going to do is talk about believing, and then on repenting, and confessing, and then being baptized. And we're just going to take a week and talk about each one of those and then Lord willing again we'll be about midway through the summer and we'll come back and we'll talk about the end of the red book let's begin this evening if you've got a pen if you got a paper handy if you've got your red book ready let's go through this together and talk about what the red book has to teach us about our spiritual condition that's the very first section that uh, Bobby Bates uh, brother in Christ who has uh, departed uh, has written about in this in this study guide in this study method once again folks if you've got a study method that you use to work with people use it this is something that's open and go that you can open up and you can do with basically anybody because as we've seen over the last several weeks all it is is just looking at a scripture and answering a question based upon what that scripture says let's begin this evening Turn in your Bible, please, to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah, chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. What better place to start than to talk about what sin does in a relationship with God? What sin does in a relationship with God? Isaiah, speaking, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your, circle the word, sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the question that he simply asks is, your blank have separated you or his, have hid his face from you. And the word that goes in the blank, easy to see, easy to spot, is the word sins. There's something that happens when a person reaches the age of accountability and they realize that they're accountable to God, and what happens is, is they recognize then the punishment for sin, that they have done what is lawless in God's sight. They've done what's wrong in God's sight. And when that happens, there's now a barrier, an impenetrable gulf that man can't get over and that God can't get over. 
The reason why is because God is holy. God in his holiness cannot touch sin. And man, when we make the conscious choice that we're going to do what's reprehensible in God's sight, and we have a tendency to think about things being reprehensible like murder and adultery and, and, and rape and all those horrible sins that we think about, God doesn't view sin like that. What God sees as a transgression of his law, a sin, an opportunity where I see what God wants and I do something else. That sin is enough to create this rift in that relationship and to separate us from our God. You remember in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve, what did they do? They took of a fruit and they ate it. It was of a tree that God said, don't eat thereof because in the day that you eat of it, you're going to surely die. And Adam and Eve, as they took of that fruit and they did that, they lost access to being able to approach God and to being able to be in his presence. That's what sin does. That's the seriousness of it. And so we get to the next question about sin in, uh, in general. Over towards the end of your Bible, there in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. John, in talking about sin, says this. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. This is the New King James uh, Version. And he says, and sin is, circle the word, lawlessness. And the question is, sin is the word lawlessness. You want to write a couple of synonyms down for lawlessness, and these are based upon different translations that you'll find. One of them says iniquity. One of them says transgression. One of them says sin is a violation of the law. The Greek word there for lawlessness is the word that we're going to see at the very end of this lesson. From Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You that have done what you've done without my authority, you that have committed iniquity and transgression and a violation of the law, Jesus says, even those people who may be practicing what they're practicing religiously and they're very sincere in their faith, he says, you've done that which is done without my authority. Sin is lawlessness, John says very plainly, very straightly. So the next question we ask is, well, what does sin do? Turn in your Bibles, please, just to back a couple pages from 1 John to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14. James, chapter 1, and verse 14. James, in talking about God not tempting us, because God can't be tempted by evil and God doesn't tempt anybody. And so we shouldn't say that when our temptations come, well, God is just tempting me. God is just wanting me to fall off the path. He says God doesn't function like that. Well, what does, James? James says every man is tempted when he is carried away or drawn away by his own desires, circle that, and entrapped, just like a snare has caught a bird in a cage, or just like a snare, a bear trap has, has sprung. Every man is tempted when he's carried away by his own desires and entrapped or enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. What the devil does is that he's got a carrot out in front of you. He's got this thing that appeals to you and appeals to me. And it's our desires within us that cause us to look at that thing and say, man, I really want that. And I really want that more than I want to obey God. And he says, when we fall for that trap, what we've done is we've committed a transgression against God. 
Listen, it's not sin to be tempted. It's sin to fall to that trap. And it says man is tempted when he is carried away or drawn away of his own desires goes in the blank. He's carried away by that. And when sin has conceived, it brings forth death. Or sorry, when, sin is, uh, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. I'm sorry, I can't see the, the screen back there very well. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin carried to its ultimate conclusion is going to bring forth death. The wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Moving along, page 3. James 4, verse 17 Still in the book of James, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is, circle the word, sin. In the context, James is talking about looking at my life and treating my life as if it's all my own, that I don't depend on God for anything. He would say there's some people that'll look at a a situation, say, let's go in such and such a city and let's buy and sell and spend a year and make a profit. He says, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what your life is going to be like. There's a danger in making plans without God, and especially as far as this principle goes, he says, if you know that you need to be making your plans with respect to God and you don't do it to you, it's sin. However, there's a larger principle here that he's teaching about, and it says, if one knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. And the question, personally, Have you ever failed to do what you know is right? You know something's good, you know something's right, and you choose the opposite. You go the other direction. And the answer, if we're all being honest with ourselves, is yes. I recognize that that's the case. The next question from Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, the scripture reading that Roger read for us just a few moments ago. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23 go hand in hand, and they're often quoted. There is none righteous, no, not one. Question is, how many are righteous? No, not one. Stated in a positive, I guess if you can say that, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know that there are none righteous, stated in the negative, how many have sinned then? The word is all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. All have sinned. Does that include you and me? The answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you see that we all have this impenetrable barrier called sin that have separated us from God from the very first question, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Because we've all taken what we know is wrong in God's sight, what's reprehensible in God's sight and committed sin. And we've done those things, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, that which is lawlessness. We have committed sin. And we know that we've all done this and we're an all in need. Well, we're all in the same boat, so to speak. The next question, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, still sticking with the book of Romans. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is sin going to pay? What's going to be the end result of our sin? When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, it brings forth death. And the wages of sin, Romans 6 verse 23, is death. So the question is, how many sins? How many sins before we deserve the penalty of death? Ten? 
15, 20, 25, 30? Is there an upper limit on sin to where God finally says, that's it, you're getting the death penalty, so to speak? The truth is, brothers and sisters, it only takes one. Why is that? Because just one sin is an affront to God and his holiness. Just one sin is something that God now can't touch. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit there in the Garden of Eden? It's just one transgression. Just one that God held them responsible for. And so the question for you and me is, when we reach that time and that, uh, that point of our life where we see what we've done wrong and we see what's right in God's sight and then we do what's wrong, that's going to pay death, according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He's now going to list, make a catalog here of some sins that especially the Corinthians were a part of and they were, they were committing and, and, and uh, that they had in their record as far as being uh, Christians who had come out of these things. Romans chapter 1, verses, or sorry, verse, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. What's the implication? There could be something that somebody looks at a sin that they've got ongoing in their life. One of these things maybe or something like it that they're looking at and saying, ah, this is just, this is a little white lie. This is not something that's going to cost me my eternal soul. This is something that I can continue holding on and harboring and holding on just in the secret recesses of my mind. Paul says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the question he asks is, will the unrighteous inherit the kingdom of God? And the answer, Paul states clearly, is no, they will not. If I am a person who's cultivating attitudes and actions like these, I'm not in a good place. God would say, repent. God would say we need to change our minds and our hearts with regard to the things that this world tells us are okay and this world tells us we can continue acceptably and have our friends and neighbors maybe say, well, that's just their choice. That's their lifestyle. That's the way they want to live. God says these are things that are going to keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. They're going to keep people out of heaven. Still on page three, Matthew 13, verses 40 through 42. What's going to be the end result? If they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, you see how logically he's kind of taking us through the study? And pointing out the consequences of sin, Matthew 13, verses 40 to 42, Jesus telling the parable of the wheat and tares. As he explains, he said, therefore, as the tares are gathered and, circle the word, burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness, hey, that's a word we've seen already once there in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Those who practice iniquity or violation of the law practice them they will cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth at the end of the world the sinners will be gathered and burned it's a very harsh statement isn't it would it surprise you to know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did at talking about heaven you suppose that there would be a whole lot of people today that if we preached a message just simply about hell that would say yeah my savior would never say that 
And I wonder if Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven so that we would understand the seriousness of living righteous and godly lives, of living lives that are pleasing to him because he came to die so that we don't have to suffer that fate. Jesus came and died so that we don't have to go to hell. What a wonderful Savior we have. Moving along, page four, let's talk about God's justice just a little bit. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3. All the way over to the end of your Bibles. In talking about God and talking about his nature and singing about his nature, we'll sing the old, old story. We'll sing the new, new song about the old, old story. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. And the question he asks is, is God just? Is God righteous? The answer we have to gather from this scripture is, yes, he is. Well, here's the question. If a judge refused to sentence convicted criminals, would he be just? Would he be righteous? We trust our legal system, at least in some respects in this country, that a judge is going to do what is right, yes? And that if we see a judge that's continually letting off people based upon them bribing him or them uh, having connections with people in the underworld or people that know him or know his family and saying, yeah, what you did is wrong, but I'm not going to give you the same punishment as I gave somebody in this exact same situation. What would you say about a judge like that? Oh, you'd say he's crooked. You say, that's a man that doesn't need to be sitting on the bench because he's, he's just as wicked as he ought to be, and he's certainly not just. He's unjust. He is unrighteous. The question is, if a judge refused to sentence convicted criminals, would he be just? And the answer is no, he's not. And the question that he then follows up with is, does, just, or does righteousness demand that a judge sentence convicted criminals? The answer is yes. You've got a person that you know 100% is guilty based upon that. They deserve that sentence. And God wouldn't be just if he said, oh, okay, I'm going to let you off just this one time. If somebody's done something that's a capital offense, death, and the judge lets them off, you'd say that's not, a, that's not a judge that needs to be sitting in a position of authority. Turn back to the book of Romans because there's no better place to go to talk about the justice and righteousness of God than in the book of Romans. And I'll explain more about that here in just a moment. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. There is no partiality with God. You know that catalog of sins that he lists there in Romans chapter 1? About God giving those people over, the Gentiles who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and practice unrighteousness, and God tells them that, uh, that because they even refuse to keep him in his knowledge, I refer you back to what Kyle Butt talked about last weekend, because they refuse to keep him in their knowledge, then you find this list of sins and these things that go, get worse and worse and worse, it seems, as it goes on there in Romans chapter 1. Can you imagine a Jewish audience thinking about their Gentile neighbors and saying, come on, Paul, get them, get them, yeah, that's right, get them, and then... What Paul does in Romans chapter 2 is he turns his attention to the Jews and he says, and you are guilty, O Jews, of the very same things that you're condemning that are being condemned there in Romans chapter 1. And he says here in verse 11, Jews, you're just as sinful as the Gentiles and there is no partiality with God. Does God play favorites? 
Does God look at some and say, well, he's handsomer than she is, or he's handsomer than this person over here, or he's smarter. Well, look, he's got a better head of hair. <laughs> some of us don't have to worry about that so much anymore. But, you know, he's, he's much better than this other guy over here, so I'm going to tr- show him a little bit more favor than I'm going to show this person over here. Romans 2 verse 11 says, no, God doesn't play like that. And in fact, there in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, again, talking to the Jewish audience, he says, God's going to render to every man according to his works or according to his deeds. Question simply, is God going to give you what what you've done according to what you've done? The answer is, yes, he will. And so we think about this. How does God... As you're turning to this next scripture, Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 20, how does God, as a just judge, somebody who's fair, who's infinitely just, how does God look down at you and me and see, here's somebody that's worthy of death. Here's somebody that deserves death because I know that they've committed lawlessness, because they've sinned against me. How does God maintain his fairness as a judge, a justness as a judge, and still Look at us and declare us righteous. Andy, if you're standing before the judge, and the judge knows with 100% certainty that you're guilty, how does the judge then look at Andy and say, Andy, you're a perfect 10 in the eyes of the law? That seems like God's unfair, doesn't it? And the whole big question about how God does that is answered there in the book of Romans, and the answer is in Jesus Christ. Because what Andy couldn't do in declaring himself righteous, God declares because what God did is get down off the bench and go and say, I'm going to take the penalty for Andy and for his transgression and for his sin. Therefore, because that satisfaction of wrath has been paid through God, through Jesus Christ, now God looks at me and he doesn't see a sinner that's worthy, that's deserving of death. He sees the blood of his son Jesus that covers me and that makes me righteous right with regard to him and with regard to the law. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15, and talking about the great white throne judgment, John looking at this divine vision, this divine revelation, and he says, I saw the dead, great and small, small and great, rather, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire circle those two words the dead were judged according to their what have you done what have you done somebody questioned one time and said what are these books that are open we know one of them because he says that they're in the context the book of life however can you imagine that there's also a standard here's the book that we're responsible to we're accountable to the living word of god is going to be there on the day of judgment But can you imagine also a book of deeds that has everything that you've ever done in your life written down there, and as God opens it up and begins to compare the standard, begins to compare the Word of God, and then begins to look into the the book of life to see whether or not your name is there. Books were opened, and anybody who was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate end for somebody who's not written in God's book, the one that he has. And so, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Does God want that fate for us? Does God want us to be cast in the lake of fire? Is God excited 
when he has to condemn somebody who is worthy of death. God is not willing that any should perish at the very end of chapter 3, verse 9, but that all should come to repentance. Is it God's will that anybody be lost eternally? It's not. It's not, but he's given us the responsibility and the ability to respond to the gospel. Looking back to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. In talking about how we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once again, why did he do that? He did that because there was no way that we could bridge that gap of sin. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid it all. He paid a debt that he did not owe. I owed a debt that I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Jesus did that. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that. Did he die for sinners? Yes. Was the death of Jesus on the cross an act of God's love for us? The answer absolutely is a resounding yes. So Romans chapter 5 verse 9, much more than now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Through who? Through Jesus. Can we be justified, declared righteous through the blood of Jesus? The answer is yes. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, finishing up this evening. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey him. Question, is Jesus the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him? Yes. Will you be saved if you do not obey Jesus? Jesus is God's solution for sin. His one and only uh, solution for sin. The answer is no. If we choose not to obey Jesus, if we choose not to respond to the gospel message, the only way that God has given us to be saved, then the answer is no, we won't be saved. Here's the last passage we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. We began with lawlessness. We're going to end with lawlessness. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus, as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. Circle that part. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity, transgression of the law, lawlessness, that which you did without the authority of God, without the authority of Jesus. Will Jesus save all those who call upon his name? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Luke 6, verse 46. Is Jesus going to say everybody that's going to call upon his name? If I'm reading Matthew 7, 21 through 23, the answer here is no. Were these people that obviously believed in Jesus, were they lost? Jesus says, yes, they were. And according to verse 21, if I want to keep myself out of that category of those people that seem like, well, they're going to be very, very surprised on the day of judgment based upon all the great things that they've done here in this life, even though they've neglected the word of God, they're going to stand before God and say, all right, I'm ready. And Jesus is going to have to say, depart from me. I never knew you because you practiced lawlessness. 
what do I need to do? What do I need to practice so that I'm not part of this group that he mentions here in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? The answer is circled right there in the red in verse 21. We need to do the will of the Father. Folks, you see, because there are so many people that are saying, no, this part is not important for salvation. No, this is extra. No, you don't have to be baptized. All of that changed somewhere in the past. Well, where did it change? Because in everything that you find as far as what it needs to be, as far as a person accepting salvation, as uh, responding to the conditions of faith, you find baptism being in every single one of those things. And it's amazing to me, it's astounding to me that our world gets so caught up and saying, no, 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 it's not essential. When the Bible clearly links salvation and something like baptism. And I'm afraid, just my own personal opinion, that more people are going to be lost because of this issue than probably anything else as far as the religious circles go. What God wants is not for us to throw up all these objections about why this is important and why that's not important and why this is done or why this is not done, but what he wants us to do is just simply follow in sincere faith to read the word of God and let that inspire us and let us help, let that sink deep down within us so that we can respond the way that he wants us to, to his will. It's the will of God that nobody's lost, but that all are saved. But the question is, what are you going to do with your free will? Are you going to respond to God, to Jesus and his message of salvation? Are you going to respond to God and his sacrifice for your sins and for mine? Because that's the only thing that's going to save. If you're ready to do that this evening, we stand ready to assist you. If maybe there's somebody here this evening that could use the prayers for the church, of the church, use the encouragement of the church, we stand ready to assist you as well. God bless you. Let's have a great week to his glory. Let's stand and sing our song.